Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. I reckon Genesis 14 is about where we are. I know we talked about chapter 12 and and at least peaked into chapter 13 of Genesis last week. So tell me what you remember about Genesis 13. What happens there? Genesis 12, right? Uh, Abram gets these incredible promises. He's called to leave his father's house and go into the promised land, which he does. Then there's a famine, so he goes down into Egypt, and we saw ways that the later experience of Israel is kind of prefigured in Abram's experience, going down into Egypt because of a famine, sojourning there for a time, there being a threat to the offspring, uh, in his case because his wife is taken into Pharaoh's harem. That's dealt with by means of plagues, and he leaves Egypt enriched. But then he comes back up into the promised land, and then what happens in chapter 13? He and Lot split. He and Lot split. Yeah. The, the, he has been blessed so tremendously, and Lot, as part of his household, participates in that blessing, so that it's it's um, it causes logistical difficulties for them to dwell together. Right? Their herdsmen are fighting for probably for pasture land for their flocks. And so Abram makes a decision that, look, we need to split up. And Abram, uh, as the older, as the, the head of the family, presents Lot with the opportunity to choose uh, where he's going to go, and Abram's going to go the other direction. And, w- and what did we see in Lot's choosing in chapter 13? What was the, how was his choice characterized by the narrator? Yeah, he thought he was getting the better end of the deal. It was a selfish choosing, right? Uh, I think for most of us, right, in our families, if the older member of the family, like your grandfather, your grandmother, right, they say, here, you choose, right? You're supposed to kind of defer to them, right? Right? You choose what you think that, you know, like you leave the choice open so that they get the better choice, even though they've deferred to you to pick the first, right? Most of us, I think, have grown up in families that operate that way, where that's kind of understood. And that would have been the case for Lot as well. But in case we're not sure whether that's an active dynamic in this situation, the narrator gives us clues, right? The manner in which Lot chooses mirrors the way in which Eve chose the fruit. Right, He looks, sees that the land is desirable for certain ends. Right, In verse 10 and following of chapter 13, Lot lifted up his eyes, saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. Right, So there's this statement that points back to Eden in case we're not tracking how these choices mirror one another. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Right? Uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which that doesn't make sense on a first reading, except that everyone in the audience of the reading this text lives after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot's looking at this land and seeing it as desirable doesn't make sense to a later audience without that explanation, right? Because they're living after the destruction at which point the, that land is very undesirable. Part of it's underwater, right, with the Dead Sea. Um, and so he has to insert that explanation. This is why it still appeared desirable at the time. So Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all the Jordan Valley, and then one further characteristic to help us understand the nature of his choice, right? Lot journeyed east. East is the direction away from the Promised Land, East is the direction away from Eden. When they moved to build the Tower of Babel, they journeyed further east. 
when Lot makes this choice, he journeys east. Um, and that will be, that will continue to be an important motif in scripture. Uh, and not just in scripture, right? But in, in Western literature, this, this idea that journeying east is a, is a movement away from the promised land and away from God's promise, uh, shows up, right? In John Steinbeck's East of Eden, right? In his, novel about California. He actually takes that title um, to describe, uh, to kind of set you up for the kind of narrative that he's giving you. A beautifully written story about terrible people and terrible things. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Steinbeck. We're here to talk about Genesis. Uh, But know that anytime someone moves east in scripture, you should cue the music in a minor key that tells you Something bad is about to happen. Uh, and so what about Abram? What's he left with, right? He's still up there on the height after Lot is chosen. Lot seems to have chosen the best of the land, and Abram's kind of left with the leftovers. And so what does the Lord say to him in that moment? Lift up your eyes. Yeah, lift up your eyes, right? Everything you can see from here and more, I will give to you and to your descendants after you, right? And it was in all four directions. Yes. And that, you know. All four directions. So not specifically east, but not exclusive of this best part that Lot has chosen, which raises questions for us, right? Lot has just chosen this portion, but now the Lord essentially says everything you can see from here, including what Lot has chosen, I will give to you and to your offspring after you. So, so we leave chapter 13 with Abram responding in faith to that and continuing to move around the land uh, that the Lord has promised to him, which is what he was doing before the famine. So then we arrive in chapter 14. Okay, are you ready? Let's read chapter 14. Chapter 14 is a lot of fun. So is chapter 15. It's all fun. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zudzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. So we don't have a, a map to look at. You may have one in your Bible. but So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some of their neighbors have decided to rebel against these other kings that they've been serving for 12 years. That doesn't sit well with these other kings. These other kings are from further east, in Mesopotamia, saw the mention of Shinar, which is associated with the Tower of Babel. And so as those kings come to deal with their um, servants who have rebelled, we get a catalog of all of the peoples in between. And they roll through that territory like a steamroller, which gives us a clue of what's about to happen later in the chapter, right? Everything between them and the people they're coming to deal with, they just go ahead and conquer on the way. These weren't necessarily even peoples who were already serving them. They're like, well, we're here. We may as well conquer that town and that town. And let's just add to our kingdom while we're on our way to deal with these rebellious kings. Why do we care? Why why does the narrator put this here? Right? Because this is like, We're following the family of Abram, and now we hit pause. And we're talking about wider international politics in the ancient Near East. Why does the narrator pause the story of Abram to talk about 
these kings rebelling against those kings. Probably to show what happened to uh, Lot. Yeah, because who are the kings who rebel? Among them are the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And these are the territories that Lot has pitched his tent among, right? He's even dwelling in the city of Sodom. So on the one hand, this is international politics, and why does Abram care? But on the other hand, it's because this is where his nephew has settled. And so these international politics are going to involve Abram's family. And because of that, they're probably going to involve Abram. So let's keep reading and see what else we notice. So verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Keterlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. This is why we care, right? Um, how's it described? How's the battle described? Or is it? One-sided. Yeah, it's so one-sided that we get a description of who went out to battle, and then we get a description of them running away. We don't even get a narrative of how the battle went, right? It's four kings against five. The five are the kings who are coming down to put their vassals back in a position of servitude. And, and as soon as we get the kings named, we get the kings running away. Right, And it's mentioned that actually the valley in which they go out to meet them, this was maybe not the brightest idea, is full of pits that will trap their chariots as they try and flee. So, of course, it's very one-sided. And so these kings who've come from Mesopotamia, right, they take everything, including Lot. Now we get to the narrator expressly telling us, this is why we care. This is why we care about what happens here. Okay, the verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, here's a little surprise. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. What just happened? Another lopsided battle. Another, a very lopsided battle, right? And suddenly we find out, right, because the narrative up to this point has suggested, and if we keep reading about Abram and Abraham and we're not paying attention, sometimes we get the impression that it's it's Abram and Sarai and then maybe a handful of servants uh, and that there's not very much to his household, um, which at some points will make us wonder, why is, why is inheritance such a big deal, right, if, he, if he's only got a couple of flocks and a couple of tents to pass on. Why is he so concerned about inheritance and where it's going to go? And here we get a little window into what it means that God had blessed him coming out of Egypt and that his his flocks and herds had become so great that he and Lot couldn't dwell together. He is able to call upon just from within his own household, never mind his allies who are mentioned, 318 trained men. This is not guys who happened to be able to strap on a sword. These are trained, seasoned, experienced warriors, right? 
This is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of special forces. So that he, together with his allies, as we'll see later, it's not just Abram and these 318 guys, but they are able to go and up against these five victorious kings and defeat them and take all of their spoil and take Lot. Four kings established in the area knowing that they were pulling a pretty risky move, rebelling against their five overlords, they could not muster the military strength to defend themselves in territory of their choosing. But Abram is able to muster 318 troops together with his allies and go out and win, right? And and win all of the booty and get it and bring it back. Was it for his own protection? That's a good question. This is probably not Abram moving around with a standing army so much as the people who are part of his household who serve, who keep watch over his flocks are also trained for and prepared for war. When the attack of 318 men, did he have any of his allies with him, or was that it? He does have allies with him. Good. So we get a mention of his allies beforehand, right? Um, in, in verse 13, right? These were allies of Abram. And then when he comes back, and they have to divide the spoil, we find out that his allies had gone with him uh, because there's a discussion of how the spoil will be divided up. So he takes more than those 318 men, right? It's, it's his army and his allies who go, although that's not the focus here. The focus is on Abram and his 318 men, and they're dividing their forces. But the mention of allies before and then the allies coming up with the dividing of the spoil later in the chapter, tell us that more than than Abram's army went. But Abram, as a as a mere herdsman, is able to muster a military force that can defeat these five victorious kings. So, okay, let's keep reading. So he divided his forces against them by night. Verse fifteen: He and his servants and defeated them. And pursued them. So they're, they're on their way back, right? From the south end of the Dead Sea, as we now know the geography of the area, they've already gotten as far as Dan, which is a, a town in the far north. It wouldn't have been named Dan at this time. It would have been named Luz. But for the audience Moses is telling the story to, they know it as Dan. And so, Abram is moving from the central highlands all the way to the north just to catch up with them and continues to pursue them beyond the borders of the promised land into Damascus, right? Then he brought back, verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people, which means the the spoils of war he's returning with include Lot and his family and his possessions, everything from Sodom and Gomorrah and these other towns, and probably everything these five kings had also carried off from all of the peoples they conquered between Mesopotamia and Palestine as they're coming on their way. So probably would have taken most of those 318 men and their allies just to carry uh, what they won as spoils of war. Okay, verse 17. He's on his way back to the promised land with all of the spoil that he's won in battle. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. That's where we get the mention that, so that we know that his allies also went with him. So what's going on in that scene? And why does Abram refuse what's offered to him? Why does Abram refuse what's offered to him? They made him rich. Yeah. So he doesn't want people to go around saying the king of Sodom enriched him. It's also a little bit of a disingenuous offer, don't you think? Like, the king of Sodom was not able to defend his own people, although somehow he's managed to escape. And now he comes to Abram, who's on his way back from having conquered the five kings the king of Sodom couldn't defend against. And, uh, and he says to Abram, yeah, you can, you can keep some of that. So... What was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah that Abram didn't even want to be associated with that at all? Yeah. yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah are already known for what will be mentioned and described in detail about them in a few more chapters. They already have that reputation. Uh, and the right we reading this, uh, Moses' first audience hearing this, they know that even though it's not going to be given to us in detail until chapter 18. Right? That's, that's already known. And so that's a part of it, is Abram doesn't want to have anything to do with ill-gotten gain. Also, although it's not directly pointed out by the narrator, this is the Lord fulfilling what he said he would do in chapter 12. That I will bless those who bless you, and the one who dishonors you I will curse. The Lord has blessed Abram coming out of Egypt. The Lord has blessed Abram and his ability to go and rescue Lot. The Lord has blessed Lot here in his being delivered because Lot is associated with Abram, even though Lot will ultimately reject the covenant. Uh, and the Lord has brought to ruin these kings who have come after Abram's family. But that blessing comes from the Lord. And so Abram's actions here make it clear that the blessing that he enjoys is dependent on the Lord and not dependent on the favor of these human kings, who, frankly, were powerless to bless or enrich Abram apart from God's blessing of and protecting of Abram. So... That explains some of his interaction with the king of Sodom, but who's this other guy? Yeah, Melchizedek. What's, what's up with that guy? His name means roughly king of righteousness, or my king is righteous. Is he one of the four kings who rebelled against the other five? I think so. What, didn't they say the king of Salem did? And that's what he is. Well, if we look at the beginning of the chapter, right, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with the king of Sodom, of Gomorrah, of Adma, of Zeboim, and Bela. Yeah, Melchizedek's not mentioned, right? Melchizedek, king of Salem. Um, there's a... Yeah, they were next to you right there. Yeah, so, so Salem is Jerusalem, right? Um, that location, it goes by several different names until um, Jerusalem is established. Salem, Jebus, and so later it will be associated with the Jebusites. 
And then later it comes to be, especially after David establishes his capital there, it comes to be known as Jerusalem, and then that name will stick. It also gets called Zion because one of the hills on which the city is built is Mount Zion, uh, and then Mount Moriah is the spoiler alert, right? That's the one where Abram will, Abraham at that point will offer Isaac his son. And so Zion and Mount Moriah are within the city of Salem or Jebus or Jerusalem. Uh, and so Zion in particular, even though it's just the name of one of the hills, will be used to refer to the whole city. But Mount Moriah, when Mount Moriah comes up, that's also within the same site. And it's on Mount Moriah where the temple will be built. That's the city where this guy comes from, which is interesting. Would you repeat that title? So the city Melchizedek comes from is this city, right? At this point in history, it's called Salem. It's the city that will be later called Jerusalem or Mount Zion. Yes. This is the, the Melchizedek who comes up in Psalm 110, which the book of Psalms is the New Testament's favorite Old Testament book. It's really close with Isaiah, but the Psalms just barely, is, just barely wins. And Psalm 110 is probably the New Testament's favorite psalm. Uh, and so it mentions, you know, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The New Testament will use that to talk about Jesus, especially in Hebrews. That comes from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies are under your footstool. Jesus brings that up in discussions with the scribes and the Pharisees, right? How could David describe his, right, his son as my Lord? That comes from Psalm 110. So Psalm 110, and then the New Testament through the lens of Psalm 110, looks back at this whole episode with Melchizedek. So he's a really interesting figure. Um, one of the reasons he's interesting is he's associated with Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is not, right? Jerusalem's a pagan city. But he seems to be both a priest and a king who worships the Lord, right? Abram interacts with him. Abram gives him a tithe. Abram recognizes Yahweh by the name God Most High in his interaction with Melchizedek uh, and even says in verse 22 uh, and identifies Yahweh with God Most High, right? In verse 22, he says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. And most of us, you probably see the small caps in your Bible there that tells us that's the personal name, Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So we have a king of what will later definitely be a pagan city inhabited by Canaanites. Here, the king who rules that city, who also acts as a priest, is a worshiper of the Lord, which is interesting. Abram put all his wealth, and it's really a lesson to wealthy people today. He knew his greatest wealth was God. Mm-hmm. That overshadowed everything. Abram had the promise from the Lord that he would bless him. Abram had the experience of that blessing over and over. And so Abram can be hands-off in terms of dealing with the spoil of war. It's like, nah, this is all from Sodom. It goes back to Sodom, right? This is all from Gomorrah. It goes back to Gomorrah. I don't want any of it, right? My allies can speak for themselves, right? The men who are with me, they should get their portion, but nothing more, right? I don't want even a shoestring from you. Uh, and instead of taking uh, a, a substantial portion of the spoils, which would have been considered his right, uh, 
Instead, he gives a tithe to the Lord through this king, Melchizedek. This also, uh, to me, confirms that Abraham believed God because he, uh, he, he wanted to make sure that the, the riches he had came from the Lord and not from some other source. Mm -hmm. a, there's a challenge to us in Abraham's actions here, and we'll, we'll watch Abraham's journey of faith over the next several chapters. This is a high point, right? Where he's experienced the Lord's blessing, he's seen him fulfill his promises, and so he, he believes that the Lord will continue to do so, and so he passes on an opportunity to grasp that blessing by his own means. But in the very next chapter, he's going to struggle with other elements of the Lord's promises and, and try to figure out a way to make good on the Lord's promises apart from the Lord's actions. And it's not going to be the last time. But here, he's at a high point where he, he believes the Lord's promises, he acts in faith. And so as we'll see kind of a roller coaster in Abraham's experience as we, as we keep reading. Which offers us a little bit of hope, I think, because often we're not like Abram in this chapter. Sometimes it's hard for us, um, even though we know, like with head knowledge, like if you asked us to recite the creed, we could do it with no hesitation. If, we, if you then stuck your finger on this or that part of our life and said, you know, what you're doing here is not in accord with what you confess here, right? Like you confess on Sunday mornings that you believe in the forgiveness of sins. But you struggle with assurance here on Thursday evenings in a way that suggests that maybe you don't actually believe in the forgiveness of sins. Right? You say here that you believe in the resurrection of the dead. But the way you mourn or the way that you cope or the way that you plan for the future suggests that maybe you don't own that belief that you confess in the resurrection of the dead. Well, if Abraham can have both high points and low points in his faith and the Lord continues to walk with him through that, and point him back to the promises and make good on those promises. I think that offers encouragement to us as we struggle to believe and walk in light of God's promises to us. So, this chapter is a high point. What about chapter 15? Ready to read chapter 15? There's more here than we'll be able to talk about this morning. So. But another reason that Matilda could have been there was more for counsel for this was a business transaction now. So having somebody that was not involved to be there to be to make sure that the the, the, the small dig is built is put up. Yeah. Even, you know. Yeah. So Melchizedek may be there as a as a disinterested party, you might say, to oversee that transaction. Yeah. Yeah, he still he receives a tithe and he and he sets the whole thing in a religious context, which would have been the case regardless. Um but he also sets it in a specifically um Yahwistic context, if that makes sense, right? That that his presence, his officiating, his receiving the tithe, and his pronouncing of blessing, especially as Abram makes clear that God Most High and Yahweh are the same God. He reminds everyone present that the Lord is the one who oversaw all of this, um, which should have been clear enough um, to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies, that obviously their kings were, or their gods were of no help in defending them. Right? On, on Tuesday nights, as we've been going through 1 Samuel, right, that point is made about the Philistines uh, quite humorously with Dagon in the temple. So, All right, chapter 15. 
This is going to be a high point or a low point for Abram? High point. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. After these things. How long after? I don't know. It says after these things. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Some of your translations might say, I am your shield and your very great reward. Um, I don't think those are necessarily in conflict with one another, but they do have a bit of a pointed edge uh, after Abram has relinquished the opportunity to lay his hands on this very great reward from the spoils of war. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What's, what's the point at which Abram struggles here? What's he saying? He doesn't have legacy. He has nothing behind him. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's his blood. Yeah, he's got all of these great riches that he enjoys. But think back to what the Lord promised him in Genesis 12, right? He promised a place, and so he's in the land. He promised his presence, right? That God will be with him, and he seems to be. He promised blessing for those who bless Abram and and cursing for those who dishonor him, and he seems to be doing that. But he also promised to make Abram a great nation and promised that the the land that God gives to Abram will go to his descendants. He doesn't have any descendants. He has no children. He has his nephew, Lot, who seems to be getting into trouble all the time, right? He has this servant who's over his household, right? Eliezer of Damascus, right? One of his slaves, um, probably head over his household under him. Maybe a position somewhat like Joseph enjoyed in Potiphar's house. And so what am I supposed to do, God? What are you going to give me? Because you've already fulfilled all of these promises except... I don't have an heir, right? So anything you give me is still not going to fix that. I still don't have an heir. You give me more sheep, it's going to pass out of the family. Are you going to give me more land? There's no son to inherit it, right? That's Abram's point of struggle here. You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, right, uh, will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him in the next verse, right? Uh, verse 4. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, right? This man shall not be your heir, your very own son, right? One who goes forth from your loins will be your heir. And he brought him outside. This next part doesn't make much sense if you grew up in the city. If you grew up outside of the city, if you've traveled I-40 across northern New Mexico at night, right? If you've been camping out in the middle of nowhere, if you get a little further away from Clinton, you look up at the stars on a clear night, this makes a lot more sense than if you grew up in town like I did, right? Um, Abram brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. People with much more powerful telescopes than I have and much more knowledge about the night sky have said, if you get in the clearest spot you can on the clearest night you can and are able to freeze the sky long enough to count, there are probably five or 6,000 visible stars. The problem with that is if you're counting them, right, there are stars that have disappeared below the horizon before you've gotten to them to count them. 
And over here in an area of the sky where you've already counted, new stars have appeared. So you, you can't actually count all of the stars. And if you think about how many stars are actually there, never mind the ones you can see with the naked eye, um, and I'm sure these estimates will be revised now that we have a new telescope up there. But say 10 years ago, if I remember right, the estimate was something like 10 to the 24th was the number of stars in the universe. I can't count that high. That's a one with 24 zeros after it, is how many stars there are, which is way more people than have ever lived so far. Not just alive right now, but way more than have ever lived up to this point altogether. And that serves for Abram as a sign. Number of the stars, good luck with that. So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram struggles specifically with the question of an heir, and with this promise of being made a great nation. And the Lord assures him by giving him this sign, by pointing to the stars, saying, your offspring will be like that. But that's not the only area that Abraham struggles. I keep going back and forth, Abram, Abraham. His name isn't changed until chapter 17, but that's the same guy, right? So sorry about that. If you're, if you're tracking, like I thought we were talking about Abram. You keep saying Abraham. So verse 7, there's another element where he struggles at this point. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That touches a raw spot for Abraham. Because right now, he doesn't possess any of it, right? He's got a place he can pitch his tent. And he's able to travel freely up and down the land. But he's a nomad, right? He's essentially a very wealthy vagrant in the promised land. So he answers in verse 8, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? All right? Okay, we've dealt with this question of who's going to inherit? How am I going to be made into a great nation? I'll be like the stars. That's great. Where are they going to live? Because you promised me this land, and I've traveled all over it. It looks kind of cool. I kind of like this land. But I don't, I don't own anything. Right? I have no title to any piece of property anywhere in this region. The Lord's going to give him another sign. He said to him, verse 9, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram knows what's up. That's going to take us a little bit to figure out what's going on. But Abram knows immediately what's going to happen. He brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. You've probably been taught about a covenant ceremony, so you may know what's about to happen, right? In the ancient Near East, when someone enters into an agreement with their overlord, the standard ceremony is you take a great variety of animals you cut them in half. You lay one half the animal on this side, one half on that side, so that you have this bloody alley, right? And usually the lesser party is going to be charged with something, including obedience to their Lord, and they're going to walk through this bloody alley. And the symbolism is if I break these promises, if I violate this oath that I'm taking on, May I be like these animals. And sometimes that's verbally expressed, and sometimes it's, it's only symbolized, right? You're inviting curses on yourself. If I break the promise that you're imposing on me at this moment in this ceremony, then may I be cut to pieces like these animals. An interesting note, I, I love reading the Bible with people because people have questions that I don't have. Um, I remember reading this passage with undergraduate students, and one had grown up on a farm and said, why is the heifer three years old? Like if she's three years old, how is she still a heifer? I don't have an answer to that. 
it had never occurred to me to ask that question. Maybe some of you guys have an answer for that question. That's a good question. But that's one of the benefits of reading the Bible with other people. Because uh, that never would have stood out to me. Like, that heifer's some kind of cow, right? I don't know. It's just they get cut in half, right? That's the important part here. But always, I would encourage you to read the Bible with other people because you benefit from their questions. So, so Abram knows what's coming, right? He's prepared everything. He's laid everything out for this covenant ceremony. He's keeping the birds of prey away. He knows that the Lord is about to come and impose certain obligations on him, and he's going to have to walk through these animal pieces and take these curses on himself in the event he should disobey. But is that what happens? Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. This is not because Abram didn't have his afternoon cup of coffee. This is the same kind of deep sleep that the Lord imposes on Adam before he takes out Adam's rib to form Eve. So this is, this is not a natural sleep that falls on Abram. The Lord puts him to sleep. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, that I will bring judgment on the nation uh, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What just happened? Did Abram walk through the pieces? No. Was a covenant made? Yes. Yes. Who walked through the pieces? The Lord did. How do we know it's the Lord who walked through the pieces? There's two ways. Yeah, what's up with the smoking pot and the flaming torch? What should that remind us of? And think about Moses telling this story to the Israelites as they're making their way out of Egypt to the promised land. What would that smoking fire pot and that flaming torch call to mind for them? Burning bush. Burning bush, maybe, but something more directly in their experience, and not just Moses's. Yeah, pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So the Lord, right? Abram expects that he's going to be the one to walk through these pieces, because that's the way this is supposed to go, right? Uh, the one in charge comes and imposes obligations on the lesser party, and that lesser party has to walk through the pieces, saying, you know, "If I break the promises I've made." To the one who's over me, I'm going to be like these animals. And instead, the Lord puts Abram to sleep. These two things that together symbolize the Lord's presence, they move through the pieces. And then it says, the Lord made a covenant with Abram on this day. So the Lord makes these promises and says in this vision that Abram is given, if these promises should fail, may I, the greater party, right? may I be torn apart like these animals. Yeah. A lot more to say on this. We'll come back to this next week because it's 1038 already. Um, and how Luke may be connecting with this passage in his description of the crucifixion in particular.
Let's talk about that next week. Yes, ma'am. In um, where we were talking about the Kelsey was there a significance with the bread and the wine? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, Melchizedek brings bread and wine, and there is a significance there. Um, on two levels. On one, this is this is just a covenant meal. Probably a covenant is made between the kings as they gather to divide the spoil. Um, but also, it points forward to the Lord's Supper as another covenant meal. So. The crucifixion. It did. This happens before the Lord passes through. All right, more to talk about next week. The bread and wine that Melchizedek brings, the covenant ceremony and what it means for Abram and for Israel later, and how the New Testament may look back specifically to this covenant ceremony to describe the work of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship. We pray that you would be with us this morning that our worship would be pleasing to you, that you would speak to us by your word, that you would mold and shape us by your Holy Spirit, and that this would all be to our good and to your honor and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.